0: We live in a world of heroes. My guess is you have a hero or two. Maybe it's a political hero, a financial hero, a business hero, an athletic hero. You have a hero maybe more than one. And those heroes typically have extraordinary characteristics. Maybe they uh, have skills or abilities, powers that you don't have. So you look up to that person and you wish you could be like them. Little kids have superheroes, but as we grow, we keep heroes. We just transition them from one area to another. But here's an interesting thing. When you come to the Bible, you also find some heroes in a sense. They stand head and shoulders above the others, but yet their qualities are different. They're ordinary rather than extraordinary. But God uses them to accomplish extraordinary things. God works through them to bring about extraordinary results, even though they're just ordinary like us. And so that's the good news, right? You may not have those abilities, those skills, those powers And yet you can be used by God as ordinary as you are to accomplish some extraordinary things. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we looked at a hero, Abraham. He has flaws, had flaws, but God used him in amazing ways to point to Jesus, the ultimate hero. Well, this morning, we're gonna look at another hero from Genesis. This guy's from the end of the book. His name's Joseph. Now, some of you may know Joseph's story. Um, It's a long story in Genesis, kind of begins in chapter 37 and runs all the way through chapter 50. We're not going to do all of that, but we are going to read that that section in chapter 50 that comes as the climax. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 50. If you use your phone, your iPad, or you just want to listen, uh, you're free to do that. I'm going to jump in at verse 15, and I'm going to read through verse 21. And this is the pinnacle of the Joseph story. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, we're going to kind of walk through that passage. In order to do that, we have to walk through a little bit of Joseph's life. Did you notice, though, at the beginning of it, it said that Joseph wept? Joseph's shedding tears. And if you've ever read through those chapters in Genesis uh, from 37 to 50, you discovered that Joseph cries a lot. In fact, I think I counted this week, he cries like eight different times in those chapters. He's crying out to God when the brothers throw him in a pit. Then he makes it to Egypt, and he cries when he reveals himself to his brothers. He cries when his father shows up. He cries when he meets Benjamin. And here in chapter 50, he's crying again. Joseph's tears. So here's my question. Why is he crying in Genesis 50? Why is he crying? Well... Do you want the short answer or the long answer? It doesn't matter how you answer, you're not getting the short answer. (laughs) The short answer is, Joseph's crying because his brothers are lying. That's what's going on. Joseph comes, he welcomes his family to Egypt, he kind of settles them down. Jacob dies, and now his brothers come and say, oh my goodness, You're going to retaliate now. You're going to seek vengeance. You're going to bring revenge into our lives for all the stuff we did to you. They're lying. And so Joseph's crying because the brothers are lying. But there's a little bit more to the story than that. You need to understand something about Joseph's journey in order to understand about Joseph's tears. In fact, Joseph's journey, it says... They came and they said, maybe he'll pay us back for all the wrong we've done to him. In verse 15, right? Look at the last line there. Maybe he holds a grudge and he'll pay us back for all the wrongs we did to him. Well, what are all the wrongs that they did to him? Well, let's kind of fly over his life just to get a a little bit of a sampling. Joseph actually is a continuation of the Abraham story. Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson goes like this. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the next to the youngest one. So Joseph's Abraham's great grandson. Well, when Joseph is born and as he grows, he is Jacob's favorite. And that kind of poisons the family. It doesn't only poison the family, it poisons Joseph. And, you know, if you grew up in a family where you were the favorite, you kind of like that, or maybe your well, a sibling you felt was a favorite, it kind of poisons the system, right? So Joseph is the favorite and he knows it, and Jacob's not afraid of showering blessings upon him and presenting him as the favorite to all of his brothers, which means his brothers hate him. Joseph's the favorite. Jacob loves Joseph more than his brothers. Joseph knows it, and Joseph's brothers hate him for being the favorite, which means Joseph is a spoiled brat. He really is. He's full of himself. In fact, early on in the story, he has a, a couple of dreams, and he, rather than sort them out and go to a counselor to figure out what the dreams mean, they're pretty obvious. He goes and tells his brothers the dreams. Now, here's where are the dreams Joseph's out in a field, and you know they're all kind of collecting sheaths, putting you know grain into uh, stalks and stuff. All of his brother's sheaths bow down to his. So he goes to his brother semi-innocently and says, hey, I had this dream, guys, and we were out and we all made our sheaths, and all of your sheaths bowed down to mine. What do you think that means, guys? Well, of course they all knew what it meant. Here's another dream where the stars and the sun and the moon are bowing down to him. His brothers say, Joseph, are you going to make us bow down to you? You're going to rule over us? And Jacob even scratches his head and said, Joseph, are you I'm your father. I'm going to bow down to you. Your mom and I are going to bow down to you. Joseph's full of himself. And so here's the message. Joseph's living your lives for mine. I'm more important than all of you. You will somehow serve me. I'm not sure how that's going to work. That's how spoiled brats live, right? And that's Joseph. Now imagine growing up with a kid like that, a brother like that. Well, anyway, it just so There's a whole bunch of it just so happens in the story. Jacob sends the brothers out to take care of sheep that are living as a nomadic people. And so he sends them to Shechem to kind of pass through. Now, Shechem is a semi-populated area. A lot of people are around in Shechem. Uh, they go to Shechem. And after, uh, again, Jacob keeps Joseph with him, though, right? He, d- he doesn't send Joseph out to work. After a few days, he sends Joseph to check on the brothers, not a real bright father, I guess. Go check on your brothers and bring a report back to me. Joseph goes, but he can't find the brothers in Shechem. But it just so happened that the brothers, when they moved the sheep from Shechem to Dothan, that some people in Shechem overheard them saying they were going to Dothan. So they come up to Joseph, these people of Shechem, and say, "Uh, what's the matter? Who are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. They're tending. my." Oh, they moved to Dothan. Now Dothan, unlike Shechem, is a rural area. Nobody around. So now they're pasturing the sheep in Dothan. Joseph shows up. There's no witnesses around. The brothers say, here comes that spoiled bread dreamer brother of ours. Maybe it's payday. There's a cistern there that has no water in it. They throw him into the cistern. And they're going to leave him there to die. Until one of the brothers, Judah, right? Judah has a brilliant plan. You know what? If we just let him die here, we don't get anything out of it. How about if we sell him? We'll get rid of him and we'll make some money. Kind of like a win-win, right? Well, a group of people, a group of merchants traveling to Egypt go by. They sell Joseph. They're spoiled brat brother. They sell him to the merchants going to Egypt. They take his robe, which was kind of the sign of his uh, favored position in the family. They kill an animal, take the blood. Put, this is before DNA testing. And they put the blood on the robe, show it to Jacob. Remember, Jacob had Joseph as his favorite. Do you know whose robe this is? Uh, we found it out laying out in the field. It's full of blood. Jacob is distraught. Jacob is distraught. Joseph's gone. Well, in Egypt, through a series of events, you know, Joseph's trying to maintain his character and God's kind of growing him. Remember last week we said, test, show you and grow you. Well, God's showing him who he is and God's growing him and he rises through the ranks in Potiphar's house and he rises through the ranks in the prison and eventually, because God's blessing him, he winds up as prime minister of Egypt. you imagine that? A little Jewish boy... All the way, you know, going out and keeping track of the brothers, now he's in charge of Egypt and distributing the grain. Now there's a famine, and I'm not sure if you ever figured it out, but in Egypt if there's a famine and all the canals dry up because the Nile isn't flooding them, it's severe. But Joseph has a plan, and he says to Pharaoh, hey, if we were to take these next then, number of years and store a lot of grain, when the years of famine come, we'll be able to survive. And the plan works Great! They have all this grain. People come from all over the world to Egypt to buy grain. Well, back in uh, Israel, Joseph's brothers and Jacob are starving to death. They hear that there's grain in Egypt, and so they go to Egypt. But Daddy Jacob has a new favorite. He, it's kind of in his blood, I guess. Right? It's Joseph's younger brother Benjamin. So of course just like with uh, when they went out to tend the sheep, Jacob does not send his favorite Benjamin to Egypt. He sends the older brothers. They all go to Egypt, they show up to get grain. Joseph immediately recognizes them. They don't recognize him because he's been uh, egyptified. You know, he's kind of looking like an Egyptian, acting like an and so they don't recognize him, he recognizes them. So he kind of calls them out and he says, uh, who are you guys? Oh, we're a group of brothers. Uh, We live, you know, in a faraway place, and we've come to get grain because we're starving to death. And uh, Joseph's going to kind of get them now, right? He says, you're spies. You're not here to buy grain. You're here to spy out the land, and you're going to come and take all of our grain. No, 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 we really are. Well, tell me about your family. Well, we're um, we're a group of brothers. One of them is no more. Well, he is right there. One of them is, no more. And the younger one, daddy, kept at home with him. Okay? So the story kind of ends, and they go back. They take the grain. But before he leaves, Joseph says, "Uh, I still think you're spies. So I'm going to keep one of the brothers here. He keeps Simeon, one of the brothers. He sends it back, and he says, don't come back unless you bring your younger brother. Then I know you're telling me the truth. Bring daddy's favorite to me. Well, when they go back, Jacob says, Now I lost Simeon, I lost Joseph, I lost Simeon. Now you can't go back unless I send Benjamin. We're never going back. Well, eventually they run out of grain. Famine's still going on. The brothers say, Dad, we're starving to death. No, you're not going back with Benjamin. Well, eventually, because he has to, he relents, and he sends Benjamin back with the brothers to get grain. Joseph will recognize them immediately, and he's crying when he we see he's not revealing himself yet. He knows them. They don't know him. He has a big feast for them. But before they leave to go back, he has a little plan. And what he does is he takes his goblet that supposedly he uses for divination purposes, and he shoves the goblet in Benjamin's sack of grain. They take off to go back. Soon after they leave, Joseph sends the cavalry out. Go and search the sack. Somebody stole my cup. Well, the brother, we don't have your cup. They're making it up. And the brothers even say, whoever's bag you find the cup in, if you find it, that person will be a slave. Uh Uh-oh, it's in Benjamin's sack. Now they go back. All the brothers go back. They're scared at death. What's dad going to do now? His second favorite, because the first one's gone now, the second favorite, he's not going to go back. Joseph then uh, reveals himself to his brothers. He says, I'm Joseph. And they're scared to death. But Joseph forgives them. He speaks words of forgiveness. He does acts of forgiveness. And in the story, you see lots of transformation. Joseph obviously has changed in this, right? But what does Joseph say? Now do you see why he's crying in Genesis 50? Jacob is now dead. Daddy's dead. The brothers say, uh-oh. Now that dad's dead, Joseph's going to make us pay. For all the wrongs we've done to him, they're scared. Now, does that theme sound familiar? We heard it in Abraham for two weeks. We're hearing it again here. Fear drives doubt doubt that God can keep his promise. So, when you begin to doubt God, you trust yourself. So, fear drives doubt in God, trust in themselves. They come up with a plan, and the plan is we'll lie. We'll tell Joseph that dad said just before he died, don't retaliate against your brothers. You need to forgive them. And so they come deceiving. See, and Joseph knows they're lying. And he cries. Because they don't trust him. Because they don't love him. Because they really haven't changed. That's why he's crying. Now what are his words? Let's read them from the passage. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You want to know how a Joseph could do that. Joseph could do that because he recognized his poverty and his wealth. I don't mean financial. He recognized his poverty and his wealth. Here's what I mean by his poverty. He says, am, am I in the place of God? He recognizes that he has been in transition too. He was living for all those years. Your life's for mine. Your life's for mine. And now they come and say, Joseph, is it still your life for ours? But no, Joseph's changed. He's recognizing he needed that forgiveness. And he's living in wealth. He's been forgiven. He understands what all that's like. This morning, uh, in, when we gather backstage before the service, usually uh, one of the worship guys uh, has a little devotional thought, and then we pray. So Wayne this morning, uh, Wayne read a verse from uh, John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you, imbi- if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. That's what Joseph's doing in this, in this passage with the words. He's abiding in God, right? He experiences and understands his own lacks. He also knows the great wealth. He's abiding in God, and now he's continuing that. That's what he's doing. He's not the hero pointing to himself. He's pointing to his relationship with God that overcomes his poverty, floods his life with wealth, and he's living out the gospel message before his brothers. Well, how is Joseph pointing then? To whom is he pointing? How's that working? Well, let let, let me tease out a few of the directional pointers in Joseph's life. And here's one Joseph is marrying together truth and love. It's hard for parents to do that. It's hard for brothers to do that. Joseph is pointing to a savior that perfectly marries truth and love. Now, let's just for a minute think about if Joseph had truth but no love. Yeah, as soon as daddy was dead, he'd take them out, right? You you intend to harm me, I'm really going to harm you. You didn't kill me in the cistern, I'm going to make you suffer now. That would be truth without love. What would it be like to have love without truth well that's love and oh it's no big deal don't worry about it let bygones be got bygones um no it's truth and love both of those things together good parents know there has to be love but in the context of truth there are consequences for thoughts there are consequences for ideas and there are consequences for actions and if parents continually shield their kids from all of those consequences, you grow up like Joseph started a spoiled bread. Truth plus consequences, truth plus love, bringing those things together. A second pointer Joseph obviously points to a savior of forgiveness. Put yourself in his shoes. Your life has been a living hell for years. That's where Joseph... Now, he's sitting right on the, on the throne now, right? Second in command of Pharaoh. But how about all the years before that? His brothers were the immediate cause for all that mess in his life. Would you be quick to forgive them? Or would you have a little bit of a payday for them? He forgives them. Not just speaking words, he actually forgives them. Joseph forgives... That's why he can take them through the process. Joseph forgives, and he's seeing if they are changed through the process. He's pointing to a Savior of truth and love. He's pointing to a Savior who actually forgives, but the forgiveness precedes the test. Picture it like this. Suppose uh, you're a manager in a business, uh, you're a vice president, you have a bunch of team members working for you, and a couple of your team members aren't performing well. You know, they're not living out the values, the performances. And what do you do? Well, you don't want to fire them immediately, right? You kind of mention it to them. Eh, you need to get your act together a little bit here. You do this, come up with some steps. Maybe you put them on a performance plan, lots of ideas. Eventually, after one, two, three, four, five strikes, whatever, eventually they get a pink slip and they're done. Is that how you handle your kids, parents? You don't give your kids a pink slip and throw them out of the family, do you? No, what do you do? You forgive, but in your forgiveness, you bring consequences. With you bring about that transformation because of forgiveness. Not in spite of it, not because you don't forgive, but because you do forgive. That's how the process works. Which brings us to the third thing Joseph's pointing to. A savior who transforms. Now, I know when you read the Joseph story, sometimes we think Joseph's life was just a constant. You know, he always, no, he didn't start out that way. He started out your lives for mine. But now at the end, he's living my life for you. Somehow that got changed. But as you read those chapters, you discover another transformation story in the bigger transformation story how about the character of Judah? Now, we haven't mentioned him yet. Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers. Judah is the one that came up with the brilliant idea to sell him rather than just let him die. Judah's the one who said, you know, we can make some money out of this deal. Rather than let him rot in the cistern, let's sell him to the slave caravan coming by. We'll make some money. We'll get rid of Joseph. It'll be a win-win. That was Judah's plan. But by the time you get to the end, when Joseph says, Benjamin stays as my slave because the cup was in his grain sack, Judah says, It will absolutely destroy my father if Benjamin does not come home. Therefore, take me as your slave and let Benjamin go home. Does that sound familiar? Joseph's changed. Judah's also changed. And so in the episodes with the money and in the episodes with the cup and in the episodes of revealing Himself over a period of time, we see the tests have grown and tests have shown. And we see Judah changing. And we see Joseph changing. And he's hoping that the brothers change too. Joseph points to a God of truth and love, a Savior that forgives, a Savior that transforms and a Savior that reassures. Now, let me uh, just kind of help you understand the bigger picture here. Joseph reassures his brothers, and in a sense he's saying, guys, you're alive in Egypt. Even though there's a famine throughout the whole land, you're alive in Egypt. Because Pharaoh loves me. Isn't that right? The brothers are not alive because Pharaoh loves them. Pharaoh loves Joseph, and Pharaoh's indebted to Joseph. And since the brothers are related to Joseph, they're covered with that protection and reassurance. Why do we need to be reassured? Why did the brothers need to be reassured? Because we forget. And so all the time they were living in Egypt, all the time they're being provided for, it's easy to forget. Now that Dad's gone, he's not going to take care of us anymore. Boy, that sounds like our story, doesn't it? Do you forget? We've got a Savior that reassures. We've got a Savior that not only speaks the truth in love, that brings together forgiveness and transformation. We've got a Savior that continually reassures because we continually forget. God the Father... Loves the Son. And all those that are related to the Son are loved by the Father because they're related to the Son. The story of Joseph is a clear pointer to the ultimate hero of the Scripture. It's not a pointer directly to Joseph. Joseph is energized by the one he's abiding in. Joseph is pointing to, just like all biblical heroes, ordinary people, that accomplish extraordinary things as they abide in Jesus and allow that glorious message and power to flow through them to the people around them. We have the privilege of being and doing that same thing. To experience, right, the power and forgiveness, recognizing our own poverty, but recognizing the wealth that we have in the Gospel. And we can be heroes as we point to the ultimate hero. Just like Joseph does. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all of these stories. All these characters in the Old Testament. The people in the New Testament. Rather than drawing attention to themselves, they're drawing attention to the truths. Drawing attention to the viability, to the power, to the grace of the Gospel. Lord, I pray that You'd help us to live lives of truth and love to live lives of forgiveness, experiencing that forgiveness and then extending that forgiveness. Lord, help us to live lives of transformation, not somehow screwing up the courage and discipline to be uh, transformed, but being transformed as we look to the ultimate hero. Lord, help us, like Joseph, like Abraham, like the other heroes of the Bible, to point to the ultimate hero, the one who brings forgiveness, truth, grace, forgiveness, transformation to us.